Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, welcome to another week of Trashy Divorces, your favorite source for the marital misconduct of celebrities. Hey friends, I'm Alicia. My name's Stacy. This week, Stacy, you are bringing us an often requested Trashy Divorce with a new Hall of Fame inductee this week. Indeed. I have boxer George Foreman, grillpreneur. Strong as he can be. Watch, Watch out for, for that tree. tree. Yes. Literally the entire story. Just George, it's a tree. Just you're you're, you're swinging to it. Don't do it, George. But, don't do it. But he cannot help himself, and he did. No, he really can't. <laughs> over Talk about, and over again. Yeah, doing the same thing over and over. But he did. He cannot help himself, and thus he has been married five times. Same thing over and over. Mm -hmm. Excellent story. Well done. Hey, before we begin your tale of marital misadventure today. I have this marvelous magic mirror where I see some names in it to give some trashy thanks to our newest Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Thank you for joining us. Rosa M, Lucy H, Jules D, Jessica, Sarah E, Olivia N, and I'm not your llama. Hey, Kimberly W, I see you and Hannah P, Alex J, Courtney, Rady P, Allison D, holy cats, y'all are amazing. And Rihanna J, our newest super supporter on Trashy Divorces. Holy cats, we are so grateful to our new Patreon folks, our existing Patreon folks, showing us some love for the podcast and getting ad-free and bonus episodes on the regular over there. And we are grateful to you for joining us this week. Come on over to the trashy side for a little listen. We gotta watch out for that tree, Stacy. <laughs> But we should still go, go, go. All right, Stacy, you got a heavyweight of a <laughs> Hall of Famer this week. I can't believe you never owned a George Foreman grill. <laughs> Did not. You and I had this conversation. Yes, I missed. I missed out on the entire George phenomenon. Foreman grill phenomenon. Well, aside from uh, being quite the uh, grillpreneur, George Foreman, retired boxer, Trashy Divorces All-Star. Welcome, George Foreman. Welcome, George Foreman. Um, George Foreman has done a heck of a lot of living in his 73 years. His professional accomplishments are the stuff of legend. He's an Olympic gold medalist. He's a two-time world heavyweight champion and also holds the honor of having been the oldest world heavyweight champion in boxing history. That's incredible. At the age of 46, he had this middle-aged comeback. We'll get into it. In his post-boxing life, he licensed his name and then became a hyper-present pitchman on television for the George Foreman Grill an endeavor thought to have netted him north of $200 million. Wow. And also revealed that George version 2.0 was quite funny and engaging, unlike the George 1.0 version, who was a very angry young man. We'll get into that too. 
His family life has also been the subject of much discussion, notably because of his five marriages. He has been married to his fifth wife since 1985, so that one worked. Oh, good on him. And 12 children, (gasps) five of whom are sons named George Edward Foreman. Not even a switched middle name, just all the same name? All the same name, so that they would always have something in common. There would always be a bit of common. They all have nicknames, but anyway. One, two, three, four, five. Are those their nicknames? No, it's like <laughs> Monk and Little Joey and like it, they all, B- Big Wheel is what, anyway, we'll get into that too. Oh my. <laughs> Among his seven daughters, only one is named Georgetta. <laughs> so the girls have something going for them there. For all the success he has enjoyed as an adult, his childhood was marked by extreme poverty and deprivation. George Edward Foreman was born January 10th, 1949, in Marshall, Texas, the fifth of seven children, and by his own account, the most hot-headed of the pack. Also Capricorn man. Uh, There you go. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. After he was born, the family relocated to Houston in hopes of finding more opportunity, but George's early life was certainly shaped by lack. Lack of money, lack of kindness from his older siblings, and lack of food. Mm. It made him into a combustible kid. In his memoir, By George, just published in 95, he describes his mother in reverential terms. She worked at a cafe to support the family because his father, who worked for the railroad, had a habit of drinking his salary away. Yikes. He talks about how a couple of Sundays a month, his mom would treat the family to bacon with breakfast, one strip each. And that sometimes on Fridays, she would bring a hamburger home from the cafe and cut it into eight pieces for everyone to share. Oh, my. That is some abject. Yes. Fortunately, her mom had several sisters. There were several aunts, um, and they had fewer children uh, to support. So there was this sort of built-in mutual aid society where they could pool funds to, you know, get stuff. It Um, takes a village. It does. It is vivid storytelling, and it mostly left me feeling gratitude for the relative comfort of my own childhood. So as noted, his siblings enjoyed taunting him, and that made him feel ganged up on by the older kids. So he began asserting power the only way a little kid knows how to do. He would hit back, literally. He would just pop people in the face at the slightest slight look at him funny. And he, you know, he would hit you. He was also a big kid. He quickly outgrew his siblings. I guess they probably stopped picking on him. Uh, His father once cheered him on after he tried to take on a much bigger kid as heavyweight champion of the world. So clearly he was making an impression, if not a great one. (laughs) As you might expect for a kid who didn't have enough to eat, uh, he says that sometimes he would take an empty paper, you know, a lunch sack uh, to school that he would he would inflate. He would blow it up with his mouth. And so it looked full. Aww. Yeah. So, you know, school was not exactly a place where he was excelling either. He recalls that his teachers recognized that he was among the poorest of their students and pretty much uniformly wrote him off. He actually gets written off a lot in his early days, but in middle school, he found football. Finally, something to give him purpose. He loved being part of a team. He loved the physicality of the game. And a bit grudgingly, I think, his seriously hard-assed coach, who would paddle players who were not performing up to snuff. You can't do that. 50s and 60s in Texas, I guess you could. 
This kept him in school until one day when he was 15 and his coach caught him smoking a cigarette, like out in the world. Something that was adamantly forbidden for the team and would certainly get George paddled at the next practice. This is very much like, to prevent myself from getting a second DUI, I will quit driving. George just quit going to school. Yeah. This was how, this was paddle avoidance. Uh, no more school. Different kind of solution. Eventually, cops came by on no. a truancy call, but they explained that he was old enough to legally quit school if that was what he wanted to do. Also, they told him that if he did not formally withdraw from school and kept skipping, they would have to follow through on the truancy stuff. And so it was that George Foreman, aged 15, dropped out of school for good. Now, as we know, a teenage boy's decision to drop out of school almost always leads to excellent outcomes. So, of course, George and his friends were soon engaged in mugging people who had the bad luck of walking alone at night in his neighborhood. This went on for a while, with George claiming that he never understood that he was committing crimes, that he was hurting people, that he was the bad guy here. Until one night, a mugging victim called the police, and George spent hours hiding out solo in the crawl space beneath a random house while the cops patrolled. This is terrifying. But you don't know. You're just trying to survive. Yeah. And until you get it. Well, and it was, yeah, he sort of had this dark night of the soul in this crawl space, um, wow. realizing like, oh my God, I am the bad guy here. Like it just hadn't occurred to him. Anyway, he reformed himself on the mugging stuff, but continued to have an extremely violent streak that thankfully never developed beyond his fists. He felt fighting with weapons was, was cheating. Okay. But that's probably because he was unbeatable with his fists, right? Well, he started when he was three. He went to work for his brother's furniture moving company for a while, but at 16, his sister recommended a federal program called Job Corps. He would live at a Job Corps training center, room and board provided. This would be the first time in his life he had had three reliable meals a day. Oh God, what a difference that has to make. Yeah, he would take classes, he would learn a trade, he would get a $30 a month stipend to live on. And upon successful completion of the two-year program, he would get $1,200 to, you know, live on until he could get situated into a job with his newly acquired skills. This is a fantastic program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was in... What country does he live in? Right, this was uh, an LBJ thing. And yeah. uh, he actually gave LBJ a plaque thanking him for... Oh, wow. Yeah, after he won the gold medal. Anyway, the training center he was assigned to was in a place called Grants Pass, Oregon. And he actually had to look up where Oregon was because he didn't really know. <laughs> How would you? And as anyone who has done a program like Outward Bound or something, you know, something similar knows, sometimes a change of scenery is the first step to real change. For George, it was not an overnight conversion. In fact, he was nearly kicked out of Job Corps several times for his bad habit of fighting with you can't other do that, man. Job Corps attendees. Yikes. But ultimately, he began to thrive as a student. He you know, finally discovered books. He learned how to make friends among his peers. And thankfully, there was a psychologist who was a counselor at Job Corps and the athletic director at the facility kind of got together and created an, like an individual achievement plan for young George to, to keep him from fighting. Friends, not fists. Yes. Uh, he would stay in the program on the condition that he submit himself to the boxing program as a way to channel the rage that had bedeviled him since he was small. Perfection. Mm -hmm. And it worked. 
I mean, not exactly immediately, but over the next year or two, after backsliding a bit with booze after leaving Job Corps, he finally dedicated himself wholly to boxing. And a year or so later, he won gold at the Mexico City Games. This launched his professional career in 1969, from which he would go on to defeat the never-defeated Joe Frazier in 1973, becoming heavyweight champion of the world, and face his first-ever loss to none other than Muhammad Ali in 1974's Rumble in the Jungle. It would not be his final turn as world heavyweight champion, however. So that's a little backstory on our profilee this week. It's probably a good time to pause. And when we come back, we will get in to the many loves of George Foreman. See you on the flip. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The ladies of the Oak Tree Group are celebrating our All-Star Season 15 with this PSA inspired by Smash Mouth. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get paid. Getting paid is only half the battle. The amount you keep and put to work for you makes the difference in your life. All that glitters is gold. Only shooting stars break the mold. And even the stars need some help every now and then. The three financial strategists of the Oak Tree Group know all about breaking molds. Yep, what a concept. I could use a little fuel myself and we could all use a little change. Take advantage of their free one hour consultation offer. Fuel up on the power of knowledge and see the change you can bring into your financial world. Well, the years start coming and they don't stop coming. Hey, it's never too late to start making more informed decisions about your financial matters, but the years do fly by before you know it. That's right. You'll never know if you don't go to www.theoaktreegroup.net for more information or call 770-319-1700 for your free one-hour consultation. That phone number again is 770-319-1700. You'll never shine if you don't glow. Stacy, this is the rumble in the jungle I'm here for. <laughs> yes. So we are here to talk about the many loves of George Foreman, not including his love for small electric grills. So it was that in 1971, while training in Minneapolis, his manager, a guy named Dick Sadler, set him up on a blind date with a woman named Adrian Calhoun. Now, this story is a bit complicated because Dick Sadler was prone to haranguing George with stories about other boxers he'd managed, 
who fell in love, lost their edge, and declined into despair and alcoholism when they realized too late that they'd thrown their dreams away on some manipulative gold digger who took their money and broke their hearts and the only solution was breakfast vodka forever. All I can think about is Sylvester Stallone and Rocky yelling, Adrian! (laughs) George was not really into Dick's worldview on women and pretty much anything else. He also chafed at the older man's efforts to control him and to exploit the George Foreman name for his own financial ambitions. After about 18 months of long-distance dating, Adrian had a job in Minneapolis and, you know, George was obviously busy training and then traveling to fights. So she basically said, look, is this going somewhere? If not, we should break up. If so, we should get married. And so in December of 1971, they did marry. Huzzah! George, in his memoir, is very clear that part of his motivation to marry Adrian was to piss off Dick Sadler (laughs) and show him that he, George, was in control of his own life, not his manager. Not a good reason to get married. Really? (laughs) Not the logical solution. No. Dick was indeed pissed, but even George's mother was upset by the marriage and cried throughout the ceremony itself. Oh, that's a bad sign. Given that she was one of just three guests, two of Adrian's relatives were present, that stood out. Getting married to annoy your manager, it turns out, is not the greatest foundation for a relationship, but George was 22, still angry at the world, and did not know that. Interestingly, Adrian still did not move to California to be with George. So even their marriage was a long-distance affair, although during this period, George was traveling a lot to see or be in fights, So I think they would often meet in various cities around the... It was probably quite fun, actually. Until it wasn't. Well, in any case, by mid-1972, Adrian was pregnant with their daughter, Mishi. And with Dick as his manager, George was signing contracts he was not comfortable with, but felt like he needed to make the money while he could, especially with a baby on the way, but also to support his mom, who had struggled so valiantly to raise him and his siblings. So Adrian passed away in 2019, just three days shy of her 73rd birthday. The Minneapolis Star Tribune ran an interview that she had given probably in the 20 teens or so. It looked fairly recent. Um, and I'm going to let Adrian say a few words about her and George Foreman. So the interviewer asks, like, how many years were you married? And she says three and laughs. He always says we should have been friends, you know, not not a couple. He has a sense of humor, and I do too. He hurt me and broke my heart. He broke my heart. I thought I was going to be married forever. I came from a divorced home, but I forgave him somewhere in there. I think he just wanted to get out there and play. He had become heavyweight champion. He said that he didn't want to be married. He said he didn't want a contract on anyone or them to have one on him. He wanted to be free. But then three years later, he said, will you marry me again? And I said, are you kidding? Because I know he'd divorce me again. (laughs) He told one of his friends, I asked Adrian to marry me again, and she told me no. I was a little bit more independent because of the divorce. I was his first wife. He's on his fourth. He was actually on his fifth at that time, but in his book, he also, I think there's one he doesn't count because it only lasted a few months. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, after he beat Joe Frazier in January of 1973, becoming world heavyweight champion, everything changed for George. He acknowledges in his memoir that he cheated on Adrian, who was in Minneapolis with their daughter, 
after the fight before leaving Kingston, Jamaica, and that he was gripped with the idea that he had shamed both himself and his marriage. His solution was to cheat more. No! Which left him feeling worse and worse every time he and Adrian were in the same place at the same time. Wrong road, George. Wrong road. In his memoir, he quotes himself saying, in seeking counsel from his local pastor, What's killing me is that I don't like the feeling that I'm a bad guy. And every time I see Adrian, that's what I feel like. I also don't like the idea of treating these other women like they're lower than my wife. George! Don't act like the bad guy! Wrong way, George! <laughs> I don't know if we have a song for this yet, but what's the song about someone always choosing the wrong thing to do? <laughs> Now I'm thinking of George of the Jungle and watch out for that tree. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, he finally started divorce proceedings sometime in 73, 74. Adrian did not want to divorce him, and the process left each of them deeply embittered toward each other, but also, I think, just in general. But this was only George's first marriage, and as we know, there were many more to come. For instance, Cynthia Lewis who, helpfully for us, has both written books and created a one-woman show about her short, unhappy marriage to the boxing great. Good on you, Cynthia. I cannot possibly tell this story better than writer Rick Del Vecchio did in a 2004 profile for the San Francisco Chronicle. Take it away, Rick. Cynthia and George both became champs in the early 70s. She was crowned Miss Black Teenage America at age 15. He beat Joe Frazier in Jamaica to win the world heavyweight belt a moment he describes on his website as the happiest of his career. They met through her mother, who was working in the gift shop at a Houston hotel where George was staying to attend the Billie Jean King-Bobby Riggs Battle of the Sexes tennis match in 1973. Yep, little call back there. Cynthia told her mother that if she bumped into the boxer, she should get his autograph. By coincidence, a few days later, he happened to come into the gift shop while my mother was on duty, Cynthia said. He came in and was flirting with my mother. My mother was a very attractive woman. She went out to dinner with him. Mother was single. She was excited. He came home with her, and that's how I met him. She's 15. Nope. Nope. So Rick Del Vecchio continues, The girl and the boxer chatted about their careers and about her plans to attend the University of Southern California. Her father was in California. I'd never had a relationship with my father, and I wanted to find him, she said. They became friends, she and George. Their relationship was not romantic. It was more like an uncle and a niece. I mean, she was in the 10th grade. So I'm so... this. She recalls George saying, We're going to call each other champs. We're both champs. And she says, All that sounds corny now, but when you're a kid, it doesn't seem corny. So Cynthia goes off to college in California, and George helps pay for it through the George Foreman Youth Foundation. But she remembers George questioning why she didn't pick a school in Texas. Also, she got a boyfriend while in college, and George had a few opinions about that. He he said he didn't send me to college to get boyfriends. (gasps) Things grew complicated between them. George became upset when he learned that she was attending a formal ball, but eventually called to say that he had lined up a tailor to make a dress for her for the ball. You're a grown adult, man. She's a child. Meanwhile, George hit the low point in his career when he lost to Muhammad Ali in 1974's Rumble in the Jungle in Zaire. In By George, the autobiography of George Foreman, he writes of the pain of having to hear himself called a loser. Quote, I felt as if my core had evaporated, he writes. He gave up boxing after his next loss to Jimmy Young in 1977. 
He experienced a religious conversion and the following year was ordained at the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Houston. His relationship towards Cynthia began to change. Oh, no. A month after the young fight, George bought her a yellow VW. I saw him that whole weekend, she said. As Cynthia tells it, he went to an evangelical church and testified that he had renounced boxing. The next time she saw him, he was clean-shaven and carrying a Bible. He invited her to church. She accepted and became Sister Cynthia. He baptized me, she said. Uh, He said how happy I'd made him. What? He baptized her? Dipped her in a river. How does... At midnight, there were... I have questions. Tambourines and guitars. Well, he's an ordained minister at this point, I think. Cynthia went to New York to study acting. She talked to George every day, listening to him read from the Bible. He said God told him I was going to be his wife forever, she says. She returned home on a Monday. George proposed. He had tears in his eyes. His point was we'd be studying the Bible together, and together we could do a lot of good for people. I felt he needed me and was reaching out. I did say I would marry him. Talk deity to me. (laughs) Cynthia was 20, immature, looking for love, rebelling against and competing with her mother, a beautiful woman who had always dreamed of becoming a ballerina and feeling the absence of her father. This is terrible. She said she and her mother were two women, quote, both wanting to please our man. As a result, she said George was almost able to dictate the order of things. This comes up a lot from his exes. He's got a bit of controlling. She described a marriage of painful scenes. This is, woo, Rick Del Vecchio, you're killing it. She said she was subjected to strict religious demands, such as fasting and speaking in tongues. She said George butchered a cow and made her clean it and hold its still warm heart. No! It was her job to feed George's pet lion and tiger. Oh my God, stop. She was very isolated and very frightened. What is this? In his autobiography, George, whose famous barbecue grills have made him a highly successful entrepreneur, describes the marriage as difficult. Quote, our marriage was a live lobster and a big steam pot. Did you make her feed those too? Cynthia believed that we were the stars of a movie. Oh my God. Okay, so that that was all from the Rick Del Vecchio piece, which you can find in our show notes. Wow. Her show and one of her books was called Bruised But Not Broken, the Cynthia Foreman story, if you want to know how she remembers things. They divorced in 1979. His religious conversion may have been bad for his second marriage, but it stuck just the same, which led him both to ministry and to his third wife, Sharon Goodson, to whom he was married for just a matter of months, starting in 1981. He had met Sharon years before when she was a 17-year-old model who had done a photo shoot ahead of one of his fights. Watch out for that tree, George! He had tried to put some moves on her during several days when they were in the same town for that promo stuff, but she consistently rejected him in a way that I think George found amusing and sweet. Like, the door was still open, but she wasn't going to let him walk through it. They kept in touch over the years while she attended and graduated from UCLA with at least two degrees. I think she also... So he would be doing this parallel at the same time that he's married to Cynthia. Oh, yeah. George. During this time, you know, she's at UCLA. George stops boxing, pursues his calling and ministry in Houston. In 1980, she was in Houston to visit some other friends and just dropped by to check up on her old boxer buddy. They began writing each other and talking on the phone a lot. 
And finally, he sent her a letter that said, Why don't you come down here and help me win some souls for God? Marry me. She called and accepted the proposal, and they wed in 1981. The problems were evident from the get-go. However, Sharon was a modern, educated, sophisticated young woman, and by now George was living a fairly austere life leading a congregation in Houston. She was a preacher's wife, so her attire and demeanor had to become more formal and more demure. He didn't allow her... Excuse me? Mm-hmm. He didn't, uh, I, I love it when we don't r- allow. Phrasing, uh-huh. phrasing. He didn't allow her to wear makeup or pants, only, uh- only dresses and no makeup. And when his first wife, Adrian, finally let their daughter, Mishi, go to stay with them, it was like all the expectations that Sharon had brought into marrying the charming, gregarious athlete she had met years before collided with the reality of a profound domesticity that she decided she wanted none of. Sharon, good on you. One Sunday morning, while he was preaching, Sharon packed her things and left. Made her escape. Out. Good for Mm. you, Sharon. George says that this absolutely broke him. And he, I mean, this is, he says that he spent months close to madness, was the phrase. Like, devastated. Maybe let her wear pants, man. Put on a little makeup. Watch out for that tree. You are in direct control of your own fun or misery quotient, George. It seems like you're doing it to yourself, man. Eventually, time and prayer helped him refocus, get over some of the hurt. There was also a timely return of an ex-girlfriend, Andrea Skeet, with whom he had had a child back in the 70s. Andrea was from St. Lucia. Wait. (laughs) Wait. Stop. So we have another child from somewhere in the 70s marriages. Okay. Just catching up. Just... I'm still feeding tigers and lions, so there's a lot going on in this story. The timeline here is complicated. It's just... Andrea was from St. Lucia in the Caribbean, and she came back to Houston after spending a year or so on the island with their daughter, Frida George, who had been born in 1976. George beelined to spend time with his daughter... And a few days later, Andrea called him and I think playfully chastised him for his romantic misadventures. She told him that no one would love him like she had and that he'd never meet anyone like her. And he replied in the most George Foreman way possible, okay, then marry me. Nope. So immediately within days of his divorce from Sharon becoming final, he and Andrea wed. His mother, by this point, could only roll her eyes, but in point of fact, he should have listened to the eye roll. He knew right away that while he loved the idea of having a family, he was not in love with Andrea. I guess mom's gotten a little better. She's moved from tears just to sighs and eye rolls. Just boggled, yeah. So Andrea, of course, was unhappy. She obviously could sense that her husband did not, like, love love her, and uh, she was also perhaps a little bit afraid of him. He's, you know... And the tigers and the lions? Yeah, I don't know what happened with that. They, As far as I could tell, they don't show up in his autobiography. But while visiting St. Lucia so George could get to know Andrea's family, Andrea told him that she was leaving him and promptly ghosted him for a while. He came back to Houston. He could not find Andrea or their daughter until she called about a month later to let him know that she was pregnant, she was in Houston, and she was considering an abortion. Oh my. 
he was devastated all over again. Like he begged her not to do it, and she eventually hung up on him. So he spent several weeks just agonizing, didn't know where, how to find her. Didn't like anyway. She called back, um, said that she was back in Saint Lucia, and that she had decided to have the baby. So that's okay. all good. George's second son, named George, who they called Monk was born in 1983, and adult George and Andrea gave their marriage another try for a while. It didn't last, and while George was traveling to a preaching engagement in Europe, Andrea packed everything up, took the kids, and left for St. Lucia, where she intended to cut George out of their lives forever. Wow. This is like a movie. What happens next? Gets more like a movie. Oh, God very cinematic and it gets more cinematic and so we're gonna pause for a minute when we come back we're gonna get into the movie on the cliffhanger so oh my okay so we're about to run into another tree stacy i feel like what's happening what's happening oh my god mission impossible this being cut out of his children's lives was something that george was simply unwilling to entertain this was just not something that was going to happen Not quite sure how to explain what happened next, though. He had another friend on St. Lucia, Irma, possibly an ex-girlfriend slash ex-employee. Sure. Seems like there was a lot of crossover because Andrea herself had been an employee when they first became involved in the 70s. Oh, my. Sexual harassment hotbed, but what can you do? Anyway, uh, so Irma happened to be the sister of the prime minister of St. Lucia. It's nice to know people. As you do. So Irma made some arrangements to get him onto the island quietly with a plan to, in effect, kidnap his U.S. citizen children while Andrea was out and fly them back to Texas. He was supposed to hide at his, outside of his daughter's school one morning and snatch her after she was dropped off. Kosher! From there, they'd go to Andrea's house while she was out and kidnap his baby son. No, you can't do that to George. Whoosh pow, that'd be that. But George was impatient and instead went straight to Andrea's house his first night on St. Lucia and knocked on the door. (laughs) Watch out for that tree, man. This was quite startling to the teenage nanny who was caring for the children while Andrea slept upstairs. George's daughter raced to greet him, and he went in and took the baby, explaining to the nanny that he was their father and he was taking them back to America. (laughs) No bigs. She did not want to abandon her charges, and she was like, well let me go back to your hotel with you at least. I mean, I know the, like, I know the baby, like, and the baby doesn't know you. Anyway. He, Wait, so he kidnaps his daughter, his infant son, and the nanny? And the nanny. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, he agreed to let her come back to the hotel to care for the kids. <laughs> so apparently St. Lucia is a pretty small place, yeah. and word gets around. Oh, so no. shortly after arriving back at the hotel... Police, military, and Andrea showed up. Andrea demanded the kids while the police insisted that he release the nanny he had kidnapped. (laughs) Stop. The nanny shouted through the door that she had not been kidnapped. She could leave whenever she wanted. And and to prove it, she left. Okay. George would not open the door for the police to come in and take the kids. But anyway, this apparently satisfied the police. 
right? There is no kidnapping happening here. What is happening is that there is a domestic and custody dispute happening. Now that the, the nanny's been released. <laughs> there was apparently no formal custodial order in either country at that point. So, like, were they going to take on George Foreman? It's very I, murky territory. Yeah. yeah. So George made clear that his American citizen children were his to take back to America. There was also the matter of his friend, the sister of the prime minister, In any event, he was not arrested, and eventually the police and the military left. Unfortunately, the plane that was supposed to whisk them off the island was no longer on the table. I'm not sure if air traffic was grounded because of this kerfuffle or what, but anyway, that the original plan was no longer operable. So Irma smuggled him and the kids to the far side of the island and put them on a boat with a couple of Rastafarians who were apparently smuggling marijuana between the islands. They were drying it on the decks as they sailed from St. Lucia to one of the Grenadines. George says they were not smoking it, so it, he was not bothered. I mean, by this point, he's, he's a teetotaler. He's, I just need a ride, man. Oh, my God. Safely away, once they made landfall, George went to the U.S. Embassy, got whatever documents the kids needed, and soon they were all back in Houston. <laughs> Even though he'd been through a number of divorces by now, this one looked like it was going to be ugly. Oh, yeah. So he went seeking advice from friends who had been through their own terrible divorces. One suggested that what he could do is hire the kid's nanny in St. Lucia to come and stay with them. And like, you know, the nanny he had not kidnapped, one could add, so that she could ultimately testify about how he was as a father and speak to, you know, the dynamics in the two households. Because she she... would have seen both sides of the situation. This is probably wise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good idea. But I feel like it's George, so... And wouldn't you know it? This is how George met his fifth and final wife. Mary Joan Martelli, aged 19, accepted his job offer, passed through Irma, and came to Houston to care for the kids. No. They did not strike up a romance or marry right away. A new thing for George. New leaves, turning them over. What do you know? And Mary did testify that he was a loving father who provided a good home for his children. Andrea returned to Houston to share custody with her ex-husband, with the judge issuing a stern warning against, quote, puddle hopping with the kids. No more of that. About a year into his new domestic arrangement, which included frequent visits from his three other kids, George realized he was falling for Mary. One day, while the two of them were at the mall... (laughs) (laughs) This is such a vivid story. He popped into the jewelry shop, bought a very modest ring, dropped to his knees, and proposed. In the mall. Let's go to the mall. Today... George Foreman and Mary, who goes by her middle name Joan these days, are still married today. It turned out that the problem George had been having in his earlier attempts at matrimony post-religious conversion was that he kept marrying women who had known him when he was a hard-charging brawler surrounded by people in the elite boxing world and all the celebrity and media attention that went with that. Learning that his pastoral persona was real and that they were expected to actually be a preacher's wife, not a rich celebrity boxer's arm candy in the spotlight, ended up being a disappointment. Joan had no experience with the glitz or the celebrity and pretty easily adopted the role of doting mother and family-focused preacher's wife. How does Joan feel about pants? 
I think he may have lightened up a bit Lord. on some of the demands, some of the rules. George threw himself into his community. I mean, he's now, a, he's a pastor. He's a minister. He put together a charity that purchased an abandoned warehouse and turned it into a youth center. Kids could come play basketball or get boxing lessons or whatever. It went really well. It was a meaningful addition to the Houston community. But eventually his accountant called and told him he did not have enough money to keep it going much longer. And this is how George Foreman returned to boxing in 1987. Really? At the age of 37 and after a decade away from the ring. Huh. To keep his youth center open. Mm -hmm. Wow. He also reinvented his image. His first go-round, he had been criticized for being aloof, rude, and sort of a menacing presence to be around. I mean, again, it was during this period where he would beat people up. Yeah. So um, he would, like, stare down the audience. He he has clear memories of all of the booing that would happen when he would be announced. But now he'd been preaching for years, and he'd learned the value of humor in public speaking— he bantered with the sports writers who were drawn to the increasing spectacles of the fights he was organizing, smaller venues initially against proficient but maybe not elite fighters. He was a huge crowd draw, though. And as the George Foreman comeback circus picked up steam and his profile increased, marketing types from all over wanted to capitalize on this friendly, smiling boxer making his quixotic, though ultimately successful, middle-aged quest for the heavyweight title. He became the heavyweight champion. That's incredible. Anyway, one of these was a company called Sultan Incorporated, which was working on mass producing an indoor grill that cooked both sides of your food at the same time. Genius. In 1994, the same year that George reclaimed his title, George Foreman's lean, mean, fat-reducing grilling machine was launched via a bunch of infomercials featuring George, and the product itself was an amazing hit. In its first 15 years on the market, it sold more than 100 million units. Holy cats. From 1994 to 1999, George received 40% of the profit on each unit sold, which worked out to like four and a half million monthly. That is some incredible dough. Oh, yeah. In 1999, Sultan streamlined their arrangement with him by paying $138 million to own the right to use his name in perpetuity. Wow. Like just outright... It's the George Foreman grill now. <laughs> Altogether, his grillpreneur sitch is thought to have made him some $200 million richer, a number that is dramatically higher than his total career earnings in the ring. It would not be fair to talk about George Foreman without talking about the 12 children. <laughs> Normally, we don't uh, discuss the kids, but it's, I mean, come on, it's such a part of it. So there's Mishi, there's George Jr., Little George. Uh, this was with a woman he did not marry. There's Frida George with Andrea. There's Georgetta uh, with another woman that he did not marry. There's Natalie. There's, uh, what? where are we at? George the Third, I guess. Monk. Leola. George the Fourth, Big Wheel. George the Fifth, <laughs> Red. George the Sixth, Little Joey. And then okay. uh, in the sounds like a mafia family. It's a little bit. <laughs> uh, and, and then he adopted he and he and Joan adopted two daughters in 09 and 2012. And okay. So, wow, that is the trashy divorces and redemption arc and weird 
defeating middle age heavyweight championship quest of George Foreman. High flying Hall of Fame tale of George Foreman. Watch out for that tree, man. Grillpreneur. Do you have trash cans? Whew. No, I don't know. Like a uh, St. Lucia full of trash cans. Uh, like, dun, 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 dun. I mean, I don't know. That is a vivid, vivid, not a kidnapper. <laughs> Maybe a kidnapper. A bit of a kidnapper. Not a pants fan. That was multi-layered and more interesting than I ever knew George Foreman was. Yes. Thank you, Stacy. You're welcome. Um, yeah, that's that's my story for the week for our season of All-Stars. Holy cats. I'm a little stunned. It's going to take me a while to process that. Good. It was fun to write. His book by George was... I can't say I read every page of it, but I read the bulk of it, and it's it's a really good read. Well done, Stacy. Well done, Trash Pandas. Thanks for tuning in today to listen to another episode of Trashy Divorces. We're going to be back on Wednesday with another Trashy Wednesday surprise for you in Season 15. In the meantime, you can always find us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces and our liberated from the paywall content over there at bit.ly slash trash candy big love again everybody thanks so much for listening we can't wait to see you wednesday until we do keep your hands clean friends keep your hearts trashy and keep your dukes up watch out for that tree (laughs) bye y'all bye and thanks to you for listening trashy divorces is a hemlock creatives production created and produced right here in atlanta georgia by us stacy and alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all